You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we focus on how you can build safer and better performing portfolios by including trend following in the mix and where we do our best to answer all your questions. As usual, let me start by saying good morning, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. Good afternoon, good morning. Hello. Hi. So, um, commodities and the VIX kind of stole the show this week, although with a uh, pretty busy political uh, agenda, maybe there was a little bit surprising to see financial markets sort of not having a big impact uh, or not being impacted so much by uh, all of the votes, for example, in the UK, which was fairly entertaining to watch. Uh, And of course... From the markets that I follow, I noticed that Lean Hawks had a big surge in price this week, uh, as well as some of the grain markets. Um, equities had pretty good week uh, this week. And on the downside, the VIX was the big loser, down almost 20%. Net gas, heating oil also lost some ground, and uh, as did the US dollar. So with that in mind, um, Moritz, how was, how was your week? Uh, well, you know, not, not spectacular, uh, minus 1% month today. I uh, sorry, that was the last week and it's now minus 11% year to date. So, um, um, driving the PL uh, in my portfolio, mostly the currencies, I must say, um, you know, I've said it repeatedly, still holding, uh, long positions in the U S dollar against other currencies. And that wasn't, um, uh, that wasn't helping this past week. Um, pretty much losing on all of the pairs there. Um, Gains were coming from the bonds again and again and again. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, repeating every week, but it's great to have them in. Equities were mixed, some winners, some losers. I have a mixed bag of positions there, some long, some short. You know, equities overall um, had a good week, like you said, Niels. Um, So on those where I have a long position, obviously that worked. But like I said, I have uh, about an equal amount of shorts. And then uh, I still have that split uh, oil position, long brand, which was good, short WTI, which wasn't good. And um, long position in in heating oil produced a bit of a loss. Uh, I remember seeing that. Other than that, really smaller uh, ranges uh, in my portfolio. Um, So like, yeah, minus 1%, not a a big week. No, 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 no. I mean, we kind of saw the same... um sort of picture we we also gave back some of the previous week's gains uh, still up for the month uh, still up for the year but uh yeah i mean big the big loser for us uh, was actually lean hawks uh, uh so that uh, didn't cope so well with the 13 percent rise when you're short british pounds didn't do well either for us um obviously um strong pound Generally speaking, and as we are generally um, long biased in the U.S. dollar, um, you know some of the currencies didn't help so much. Uh, yen did okay, Mexican peso did okay. Uh, like you, uh, Moritz, uh, some of the fixed income markets were fine. Uh, some of the equity markets were fine, um, but uh, grains as a sector uh, got hit from from stronger prices, uh, where we have a 
general short bias. So uh, yeah, all in all, uh, a little bit of a correction week, I would say not a lot of shifts uh, in terms of biases in the overall exposure, maybe a little bit longer now stocks than we were a week ago, but it's fairly small uh, exposure. Um, yeah, so I mean, just one of those uh, weeks, I would say, um, but um, but with commodities uh, mainly the driver of uh, performance. Um, Jerry, what was your week uh, like? That's a good week. Other than yeah. skiing, of yeah. course, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you know, decent week in the U.S. stocks, long uh, stocks are good, and dollar uh, give back some, I guess, to be expected that they're probably going to try to Buffett some of those uh, extreme moves and uh, surprise. And it, uh, I love the British pound. Everything over here is negative. Every day, hour, everything, something about Theresa May is going to be negative and the pound rallies. That's, that's perfect. We love that. Um, cattle still looking good. Palladium still looking good. But uh, probably a losing week, but not by much. And to be expected, uh, crazy sell-offs in the grains. So they have some rallies. But yeah counter trend week yeah absolutely um so it was a busy week uh on the political scene as you say uh jerry was it also a busy week in the uh, kind of twitter world and and what were what were people passionate about this week in terms of topics well i forced my passion on people so it's hard to say if they're <laughs> as passionate about some of this as <laughs> i was but uh it was a fun week, I uh, got into some interesting conversations and about topics that I'm interested in. I uh, so I think uh, probably the, one of the most popular tweets was uh, this age-old question that uh, I think a lot of trend followers still ascribe to the idea that volatility in your portfolio, in your open trades, can be treated differently than uh, a loss. <clears throat> so. Um, my friend Wayne uh, tweeted, volatility in and of itself is not risk. Uh, the risk is with the uncertainty in the thing that moves. If my stock goes down, will it recover the same amount? That depends on the stock or the company, not its volatility. Volatility is the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. And then another, uh, not your average Joe, I liked what he said. Uh, I bifurcate my thinking about risk and volatility. I consider risk capital loss on my cost basis. I consider volatility to be P&L swings when positions are above uh, are positive, they're above the cost. I seek to limit risk and patiently endure volatility. And I thought that's what a great quote. Um, limit risk and patiently endure volatility. So I thought those were some really great ideas. And I think that that's one of the uh, brilliant parts of trend following that taking small losses, preserving capital, uh, that is appropriate historically was a trend following concept and then being more open for the p l to fluctuate uh uh as we wait for our system exits which uh these days may have to be further away from the market than ever before the 200-day 300-day moving average uh, <clears throat> so we're willing to let our profits run and sit back for the mega mega outliers as i call them and uh so I think that idea has sort of uh, not universally held anymore with the popularity of all targeting and managing the equity and telling clients that uh, equity fluctuations uh, are risk. 
and need to be dealt with and watch us deal with them without harming profitability. Uh, and as you know, I don't agree with all of that. I finally laid out what I do on a tweet, which is I limit my losses to 25 basis points of AUM, uh, 60% of my trades are losses. That's risk. Volatility, eh, I'll let my open profits retrace hundreds of basis points. So that was, uh, sorry to be long-winded, but that was uh, a fun exchange with uh, two of my Twitter friends. I mean, I think it touches on on, on a quite an important point. And that is, of course, that a lot of people equate volatility with risk. And I think that's been a big part of the debate that uh, has been, you know, certainly in my 25 plus years of this industry. And that is because our returns are volatile. And people perceive them to be more risky. Yet, as we've often talked about, um, you can have strategies that doesn't look nearly as volatile, but actually, in fact, are a lot more risky. So, so that kind of seems to touch on 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 that particular debate, and maybe that's why it got a lot of traction. Because I think it is difficult for for investors. And we've mentioned this also from the the white, or the, not not a white paper, maybe, but the paper that uh, Dr. David Drews did many years ago, where he says, you know, the more volatile your portfolio, the more robust uh, or volatile your model is or approaches, the more robust it tends to be, which is counterintuitive for for many people to um, to understand or, or let alone believe in. Um, what about you, Moritz? What do you think about these topics? Any wise? All true. I, I liked it. I um, retweeted the uh, Jerry's tweet on um, on the volatility. I couldn't agree more. You know, my positive open trade equity. If this is volatile, well, so be it. This is not. This is not what I consider risk. You know, risk to us is um, permanent loss of capital, over trading, going bust. You know not knowing what we're doing uh, in, you know, periods of uncertainty. This is all risk, but, you know, a volatile P&L stream, um, you know, that that's not risky to me. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the expected byproduct of our trading. Uh, we need it to be that way in order to make the money. So I don't mind it. And that's also one of the reasons why, you know, neither of us wants to have a permanent vault control mechanism in place. Because, you know, we need that volatility to be there. Uh, we can, you know, suppress it um, to have a, you know, smoother return profile. That, you know, that wouldn't work for me. So I, like I said, I absolutely love this tweet. Uh, lots of wisdom in that. In very simple words, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Although not everybody loved trend following, I thought, saw in your, uh, in your Twitter feed this week, uh, Jerry, there was a little bit of a pushback i don't know if you if you know which tweet i'm thinking of but uh maybe that's part of your lineup for this week <laughs> oh no it's this one right here so okay. good timing um oh yeah so another hopefully soon to be friend doesn't sound friendly right now but said uh, that's not investing it's literally gambling on random electronic price blips 60% losses you have to have better odds at caesar's blackjack which gives worst odds in vegas I should know. Investing takes multi-year patience in companies, occasional double-digit drawdowns, plus ignoring price. Um, <clears throat> and then it goes on to accuse me. The ultimate uh, accusation here is I'm a trader, not an investor, <laughs> which I'm, you know, proud. I'm, I'm happy. Uh, a trader 
is basically someone who tries to protect capital and have, maybe has rules and is not um, uh, doesn't place his investment philosophy in the same category as his religion. Uh, as co- as dedicated as all of us are to following our rules, which are trend rules and diversification, we acknowledge that money management and risk reduction infrequently may be something we need to do because I personally don't trust these systems, even though there's been thousands of years worth of data in order to stay in the game, which is my highest calling, I must maybe step outside of my rules sometimes and reduce risk on my positions to preserve the capital. So I'm not going to have a religious point of view on this, that I have faith in this system, I have faith in what's this track record and hundreds of years or 50 years worth of data. No, I do have faith. And as soon as the markets calm down, I'll go back to exercising that faith. But my, I've got to preserve my capital. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, everyone is uh, entitled to their view. And as you say, maybe one day, uh, even this uh, this person will be uh, seeing things differently. You, you never know. Everybody has, has their own definition, it seems, of what's an investor and what's a trader. I, you know, I, I don't think there is a definition out there. Just, you know, people, you know, find their own ways of describing what's an investor, what's a trader. To me, I must say, it's pretty much the same thing. You know, investor is a very long-term trader, maybe. But what, I mean, see what and I does mean? does it even matter? I mean, it, does it exactly. matter? What, what's, what's the point of um, making that distinction? And, and then secondly, most of the time, for whatever reason, uh, if you identify yourself as a trader, you're put in the, in, in, in the bad spot because, you know, being an investor, that's the great thing. You should be an investor. Investors are the good guys um, that don't do any harm, um, you know, they're there for the long term, all of that. And then, you know, if you're a trader, then apparently you're you're the opposite. I just, I think that's, uh, that's just, um, well, entertaining, uh, to say the least. Yeah, no, absolutely. But there were more people giving us pushback or giving you pushback on, on trend following this week, right? I saw... I was actually referring to another tweet when you when you said, yeah, it's coming right up. It's actually, there's another one that... Uh, that I noticed at least. Okay, you should go ahead and uh, remind me which one that is. Well, I thought it was the guy who called trend following the dumbest strategy of all, buying when other people buy and selling when other people sell, something along those lines, right? Sounds stupid. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, it's not it's not only yeah, it's the one I pinned to my it's my pinned tweet, so I'm All right. Yeah, okay. yeah, so of course. Um, I didn't remember that. Yeah, he's zero hedge. He says CTAs and trend followers have to be the most useless financial invention ever. Uh, quote, buy because others are buying. And uh, so, I mean, it's not articulate and it's interesting. It's funny. No one pays this much mind, I don't think. But, um, and I, I sort of wrote, uh, I remember when things like this would upset me. Um, <clears throat> but also remember when, uh, and it still occurs that I, when I first got into, I started Chesapeake in 1988, I um, was around a lot of uh, clients and fund of funds, CTA fund of funds, and they would introduce me and mention new type, new traders. And my only bottom line was say, hey, hey, is this a trend follower? And they'd say no, usually. And I'd say, okay, good, good. Because I get very nervous, you know. And so it's, I appreciate this sort of skepticism and being called useless, useless and something new, uh, an invention. I think that's cool. Um, regardless of how many thousands of academic papers that justify and talk 
nice about uh, time series momentum and trend following. Uh, you know, you're just going to still have some people that this just goes counter to their worldview. They feel very threatened. It's it's all, it almost reaches a level of a pol politics in the U.S. where we're totally totally paralyzed, uh, a paralyzed country, and uh, everyone seemingly is in opposite extreme opposite uh, viewpoints. Sometimes that uh, the same thing sort of happens in financial markets. This goes against uh, fundamental value, being an investor, being a morally superior, ethically superior to traders. So just kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with, with comments like that uh, from, from Zero Hedge, I would be interested to know how he feels about, um, you know, indexing because uh, cap weighting, uh, weighted indexing is, uh, in my opinion, trend following. You buy more of the things that work and less of the things that doesn't work. And uh, so, um, so I wonder whether he feels that's useless as well. And even if he does, I mean, it doesn't really matter in that sense because uh, the truth is a lot of people find it, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a strategy that they want to embrace uh, without a doubt. Um, and, and, and why would any reason that works in terms of uh, generating uh, returns uh, over time um, be useless? It doesn't really matter what the um, you know what the background is uh, in my opinion as long as you have a rule for it as such and you can identify it and qualify it and 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 follow it um, it's hard to see yeah. why that would be called useless especially if you look at the long-term track records yeah I mean look at the last you know 30 40 years of trend following trading and then you know how can you even come to the conclusion that that is useless I mean I think you can only say that with, you know, maybe looking at the past two or three years and then, oh, well, that seems to be popular opinion. Maybe I can put an article out and get some, you know, ads sold and, you know, clicks. But, you know, other than that, it's just um, pointless. Maybe he was joking. Maybe he was. <laughs> maybe he was. Maybe he was taking on uh, Jerry's sarcasm from time to time. Because actually, when you exactly. see, when you think about it, Buying when other people are buying. I mean, kind of funny, right? Because yeah, of course you would be buying when other people are buying, kind of thing, right? Maybe it's a bull. Maybe he's trapped us. Yeah, it was a trap. You know, that's funny you say that because there are some people on Twitter in politics. One woman is in politics, and there's a guy, Odd Stats, and uh, right, yeah. I s tweeted a few weeks ago that um, I don't think 50% of the people realize that he's just totally being sarcastic. He's not being, a, he, right. his uh, idea is to give people on Twitter a very low sample size ideas. This is the last five times this happened, the market went up or down. And uh, I tweeted that, you know, this is what he does. It's funny. And I, I think probably half the people don't even understand that he's not being real. He wrote back saying, I don't think a hundred people out of my 40,000 <laughs> uh, followers. Then the other day, the, this uh, woman on Twitter, who does a lot of politics, uh, she's just in um, hyper mode when it comes to being sarcastic and making fun of her opposition. Uh, other people start lashing out at her so strongly, you know, who don't get it, uh, supposedly. But then someone says, hey, what if this guy, if he's being sarcastic? <laughs> so it's this crazy loop that, uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I accept that. I think uh, yeah. but what I was going to say is that, uh, you know, we, everyone, not just the trend followers, but value fundamental people, we're reminded constantly of failure of being able to predict. Mm. So I embrace that you can't predict. You should follow prices. 
at worst, you could say, okay, I don't think it works anymore. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. So fair. Mm -hmm. Um, Another article that I tweeted from the New York Times says, um, quote, despite the superlatives, this rally's primary characteristic is how much skepticism it generated. Many investors spent the past decade deriding the rally and anticipating its demise, unquote. So even trend followers, because we sometimes get pulled into the crisis alpha thing Mm. uh, where we root against the stock trend that we're in. Because we we feel like well we're, yeah you know we have a, f- a little bit of a, um, portfolio dedicated to stocks but I'm going to make more money and prove my worth if stocks go down so I'm going to root against the long term trend in the stocks that I'm long uh, and we're proved wrong in fact the CTAs have a stellar record as it relates to ignoring value fundamentals overbought uh, can't keep going up by staying long stocks, bonds as they're approaching zero interest rates, just sticking with the trend. So we have so many, so much evidence that paying attention to price only uh, has a tendency to work. Yeah. I mean, funnily enough, as we've gone uh, on in our series and we've certainly discussed it from time to time, um, you know, this, this notion of crisis alpha, as much as I, uh, you know, think the the person who coined the phrase uh you know i i really love uh, her work um but but i think it's causing a lot more trouble uh and even inside myself now that we have to kind of defend that that uh, caption we've now put around uh, our strategy that it's crisis alpha um because it's not <laughs> um so i i'm not i i, I don't think that that we've done ourselves a, a, a great deal of, of, of service in, um, in being linked to that um, description, unfortunately, even though it's very catchy and it kind of makes sense in some ways, but as it's not consistent, um, or at least you start debating also what is a crisis and, you know, how much alpha and all of that, it certainly causes... Um, uh, at least in my discussions as I travel around, um, always having to to debate and defend that, especially in the year like 2018 where everybody kind of screams, so where was the crisis alpha? Even though... And now they're course, saying, where was yeah. the crisis? Yeah, right, yeah. But it's I just did, a, a trend-following fail where, uh, you know, that's a char- any, that S&P chart... I've seen it a million times and in lots of different markets where trend following gets you out near the low or gets short yeah. near the low. So it's just, yeah. I mean, it's the counter to uh, to how long only can uh, be a part of the portfolio, but not mm-hmm. a big part. Um, so, I, and I think that, uh, as I've said before, if you really want, and it's the crisis alpha suffers because it's not real and it's pretend and it's a marketing slogan. Mm. And, uh, it is, and ironically, it's a marketing slogan that ends up allocating five to ten percent to CTAs. And we've at seen, best, yeah, at best, we've seen lower numbers. So yeah. great marketing slogan for the thirty some years, to where you ensure that you don't get very much of the portfolio, and it doesn't make sense because how can we really add crisis alpha in a portfolio where we're so you know so small uh, part of. So Maybe. I think, like I said before, if you really want crisis alpha, if you want to be honest about it, you don't expect one person on the planet to go with this, but they should. And that is, let us 
use our trend following with the entire portfolio, stocks, mm. bonds, currencies, commodities, interest rates. If you really want me to help, don't hand me a dysfunctional, long-only portfolio of stocks and say, hey, fix this. No. Give me the stocks. Give me the bonds. Let me trend follow that. And then if you want some of the currencies, commodities as well, great. Uh, but it's, it's all pretend. C completely agree. And and maybe we should throw out to your many Twitter followers and 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 followers of of uh, of our podcast here to come up with a better phrase. I mean, it must be possible for us to come up with a better phrase that uh, we as an industry can adopt uh, over time as a as a new slogan, but that uh, is actually a little bit more accurate and doesn't cause so many um, problems um, when there is a period where. Equities go down, and and where trend following is not performing. You know what I think is uh, is is remarkable that um, I think prior to 2018, the trend following CTAs they liked crisis alpha, and uh, you know I've seen a lot of presentations uh, in which you know there was specifically made reference to crisis alpha, and you know there's a positive skew, and we're producing crisis alpha, and we're protecting the downside, and this is why you should be allocating to us. And I also remember uh, back, I think, in 2015, Niels, I, I wrote an article for the Top Traders Unplugged uh, website. Yep. And I was a little critical about that already then because, you know, I thought, well, I, I'm not sure if that crisis alpha is really part of the of the output process that, that we have. And now um, February 2018 comes along and, you know, the uh, it, it changes. You know, the, the CTAs, uh, there's lots more critic uh, criticism around the term, um, but you know, I you know when I look back, I also want to say you know let, let's be fair. Lots of lots of the the people in our camp have used this term um, and probably subscribed to it, and and now it's reversing. Yeah, and it used to be when uh, I got started, it was a more humble approach. It was here are the top ten drawdowns of the S and P, uh, and here's how CTAs performed. Uh, you know as during, uh, before, during, and after those drawdowns. And so CTAs over a big bear market <clears throat> or uh, extended periods of uh, decline in stocks added value. I mean, they had value all the time, but they had a tendency to do that. Then it morphed into, what uh, can you help me in February? <laughs> and perfectly on the 5th of exactly. February. Right. So yeah, got a little ahead of ourselves. And then you know, breaking for an industry or a group or a company to break out of something that they know is going to cost them later uh, to avoid having it cost you now. It's just, you know, it's happened a million times in human history. Mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. businesses have a difficult time embracing the change because of the short term negativity. And so denying crisis self up <clears throat> and what's possible and laying it on the line exactly what is possible it's, you know, it's going to maybe uh, clients may not like that. Well, I bought it for this. Now you're saying that I'm redeeming or I'm not happy. And uh, pulling the plug on a bad idea, that's that allow refusing to do that allows newer people to come along uh, who with no business, but with more of an honest idea and solution, they can gain market share. Yeah. Speaking about crisis, just a little plug for an upcoming episode uh, in uh, this week on, on Top Traders Unplugged. A fascinating conversation between uh, Chris Cole, uh, Dan Stone, Matthew Sargason, 
uh, and moderated by uh, guest host Chris Solars, uh, all about uh, tail um, hedges and 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 protection and and so on and so forth. So very much sort of a, a deep dive into uh, how to protect yourself against uh, the next crisis, and uh, obviously where long volatility strategies um, play uh, or can play a role. So so. Um, so I hope people will tune in and listen to that. Might might also give us a bit of uh, content to discuss uh, next week. Looking forward to it. Yeah. What else? Um, what else happened in in your Twitter stream this week, Jerry? Another topic that continues to come up that's interesting and frustrating is um, was summed up by a good friend. Um, market timing is a nagle is analogous to trend following and may require some view of past behavior repeating itself. So this whole idea that uh, market timing doesn't work and uh, then somehow trend following gets roped into this, I think most of the time by people who just don't like trend following. Uh, But I just use that example to sort of restate my opinion that um, trend following systems with their 40% winning trades and all the profits coming from mega, mega outliers is not meant for predicting. So maybe I had that wrong. I'm not sure. Um, I think that that's a pretty good way of looking at it, that how can I be timing if my whole profitability is determined by these outliers that 5% of the trades, I'm always wrong. I'm mostly always wrong on a trade anyways. Uh, is this really timing? Um, and I go on to say, like a blackjack edge, I'm not sure what's coming next, but I do know what to do when it happens. And I don't think I'm relying on anything from the past to repeat itself. In quote, I mean, other than I'm relying upon this uh, <clears throat> idea that uh, the markets are a non-normal distribution, I'm lopping off the bad distribution and taking that small loss, 25, 50 basis points of my capital, and I'm allowing the positive outlier to keep going and profit from that. Um, so I, that needs to continue, I suppose. And I, maybe I was a little overstated that I don't, I'm not relying on anything from the past. That sort of idea that the big profits you know, pay for the small losses but certainly, uh, you know, looking at what moves these markets over the years, it's always different. You know, uh, we close our eyes and follow the trend and cut our losses and could care less um, if things are different now because of Trump or because of uh, zero interest rates. We, 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 and we've seen difference uh, for our entire career from a fundamental asset point of view. But uh, am I missing something? No, not missing anything. Perfect. Liked it. One of the tweets I retweeted. Um, and it's like what we said earlier, right? I mean, with that, um, you know, Blackjack Edge, I, I, I like that because it really is about, you know, we're, we're showing up on the table again. None of us knows what's going to be happening with our positions, with our trades, uh, with tomorrow. But we are prepared. We know what we're going to do already today if things turn out uh, whatever way they turn out. You know, if they turn out badly, well, that goes into a stop loss. We get out of the position, try again, try again, try again. If it goes well, well, we hold on to it and we hope it goes to the moon. And uh, and <clears throat> we've talked on the podcast many times about 
negative articles coming from people who I question their motives and their uh, about uh, the the uh, death cross, the fifty mm-hmm. day moving average going below or above the two hundred day moving average. Totally fantastic uh, trend signal out there, in my opinion. It's it's long term enough. And then their article is, here's the last five times this happened in the S&P index, and it hasn't worked. End of article. Yeah, that's sort of timing. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't get the timing right because the market rallies. Uh, now, we cheat and say, well, you know, you've got to trade the single stocks maybe, or you've got to trade currencies, commodities as well, long and short, because that strategy was such a low win rate and relying upon... Uh, a small percentage of the trades, the mega mega outliers, as I call them, uh, yeah, it needs it needs help, and you can get this help from trading um, not just the S and P, but their premise is timing, and I'm like, yeah, it sucks as a timing, yeah, um, yeah. it's not meant for timing. So can we all kind of like understand that a trend following system is not necessarily timing? It just bugs me that uh, we let's move beyond. That's it's old news. That's 101. It's trading 101. Where it's many years past that. Uh, continuing to bring this stuff up and drag it out. There's so many problems with what we do. <laughs> the performance in the, just describing it. it exactly, and letting these letting these profits gyrate around and these big huge profits that we're willing to allow to retrace hundreds of basis points. They ended up being a loser. Or almost no profit. So many things to complain about. We have a PhD, and we're our biggest critics. We know it inside and out. If you want to know something negative, call me, because I know <laughs> the negative. You may not even have, have uncovered it or experienced it yet. But this, no, it's not anything to do with predicting. And you know, it's. Uh, I want to bring that sample size up again because right. when you do this on just the S and P five hundred, I'm sure we've said it right. You have five signals in the last, I don't know, X many years. Maybe you've had 20 signals in the last 20 years or 10 years. I don't know what it is, right? But this is not a large sample size. So it's so easy to jump to conclusions and say, well, that obviously doesn't work and it has to do with timing and it's this and it's that, right? But apply the same thing to 100 markets, maybe 150 markets if you're trading single stocks. You could even do more than that. And your sample size starts to increase massively. And all of a sudden you get a much, much different picture and at that point, it becomes so much easier to step back and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not having an opinion on any of that. I'm closing my eyes. I'm following the statistics and the expected outcome of that system. Whether that trade that I'm going to do on market A or market B or market C, whatever the market is, doesn't even matter, right? Whether that's a winner or a loser doesn't matter for the long-term expectancy of that system. I'm just, you know, closing the eyes like showing up at that blackjack table, I know I have that edge, or at least in the past, I've, I've seen that edge. There's no reason to believe that edge isn't there. So therefore I play. And I play it in a very controlled way. Getting to that point, I think, is so hard and difficult for uh, the majority of people because it means that you've kind of like freed yourself from having an opinion on markets or stocks or PEs or values or is the market too high? Is the market too low? Do politics impacting that way or this way? I don't know. And, you know, it. I, I have the feeling that it's very difficult to get to the point where you just become agnostic. Yeah. And I, just to reiterate something uh, on that, of course, is that 
Unfortunately, a lot of people think when they read a book or they find some kind of online place where they can get a system about trend following and think, oh, this is great. Let me just try and put it on my stock portfolio because that's what I know. Um, you know, they, really one of the most important ingredients in, uh, in trend following, in my opinion at least, is the diversification across uncorrelated markets. Um, you know, just doing it on one asset class uh, really... Uh, won't give you uh, the results that, um, that that it's capable of. And of course, most people are not used to trading commodities uh, or currencies for that matter. Maybe with bonds and equities, sure, that's fine. But all the other asset classes or markets that are super important uh, are, are difficult. And this is also why from time to time when people ask us, uh, I say, I, I, I state the opinion that it may not always be a good idea, even though you have passion for becoming a trend follower or being a trend follower, it may not always be the right solution to do it yourself. Sometimes it's better to go with someone who has already got the diversification in their portfolio, who's got the experience of sticking to the rules and, um, you know, and, 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 and invest, uh, uh, you know, in that way instead. Mm -hmm. Should we continue or do we jump to some questions? Um, let's, uh, let's end on one more from Wayne. Oh, yeah. Uh, we like Wayne. Uh, love Wayne. Yeah. Great guy. Very smart man. So Wayne says in his tweet, uh, how do we know, how we know our wife has been listening to us all this time? He goes, my wife's a writer. On the weekend, I was telling her about a great looking but obscure movie I found I found that got incredibly high ratings on IMDb and tomatoes. She responds, quote, what's the sample size? Unquote. <laughs> uh, so listening. I write the most important question to ask any trader, what's the sample size? Then I write again, the most important question every trader should ask themselves all the time. And a few years ago, a very famous podcast interviewer asked me, question. I'm going to get you on the podcast and I want you to tell me what's the one question that people should ask you that they don't ever ask. And as you know, I, Johnny OneNote, I just continue bringing up sample size as often as possible. So I will continue to do that. It's the greatest gift I could give anyone. It was given to me. When you think about it, it's the reason, the only reason you should go forward with any confidence whatsoever is that you've added up your trades, thousands of trades historically. Even more important, when it's a non-normal distribution, to have a large sample size of trades and to follow those entry exit, um, just like the system was back tested. Amen. Yes. Good way to close. I think the uh, the tweets for now. Maybe maybe more will come later in in our conversation today. You never know. There's uh, obviously a crossover sometimes between what we see in the Twitter world and and what questions we get and and other uh, papers we come across during the week. But anyways, let's jump to some of the questions. And by the way, for those who are new to our show here, if you have questions, we love to uh, uh, attempt to answer them as best we can. If you email to, uh, them to info at toptradersonplug.com, we do our best to, uh, to answer them the same week uh, as we get them. Although this question actually came in a little while ago from Antonio, but he had so many that I think he appreciates that we have pushed them out a little bit. So uh, here's a, a question from uh, Antonio um, from a few days ago, actually. So he says, if I 
presented you with a typical traditional retirement portfolio, 60-40 long global stocks and bonds. From where would you take uh, to allocate how much to trend following? Could you walk me through the logic of how you choose the allocation to trend following without having an expected future analyzed return assumption for trend following? Why would you allocate at all to perma long stocks and bonds in tandem with trend following strategies? Are there strategies that bet on the range slash whipsaw slash consolidation that have positive expectancy and would possibly be better a better fit than simple long stocks and bonds in tandem with trend following? Interesting question, Antonio. Thanks for that. Uh, appreciate it. Um, Moritz. Have you any mm. any thoughts on this? We kind of touch yes. upon it already. I think we've uh, uh, we've come to that question from many different sides. Um, you know, saying that you know we wouldn't be doing the sixty forty or just the bonds or just the equities. Uh, we'd be looking to uh, to trend follow those right and and have a you know start with trend following, diversified trend following, systematic, all of the different markets, and you know, and have that as the core of your portfolio. If after that, you're still unsatisfied and you still feel that for whatever reason, there should be a long only holding of bonds or equities or gold or whatever it is uh, you think you should have as a permanent allocation in your portfolio, that should be the second step, in my opinion. And I, you know, recommend to try and follow that also. So <clears throat> I think all three of us will probably uh, you know, get to that, you know, kind of like same target where we'd say, well, we wouldn't be doing the long only or the 60-40 and rather start with the trend following and everything else follows that. Yeah, I mean, so so doing trend following on stocks and bonds and everything in your portfolio is, of course, uh, what we do. So I don't expect necessarily investors to embrace that themselves um, for my view is that most likely they're better off just to focus on the strategic asset allocation. I think nowadays you should be, for the most part, able to manage your wealth uh, in a sensible way without spending very much time on it uh, if you get your building blocks uh, correct. Um, and where, of course, I would argue that trend following should be one of the uh, the building blocks. Um now, so so the answer is for me at least to Antonio's question is you would take some of the sixty and some of the forty uh, to allocate towards uh, trend following. It has to be meaningful. Uh, I I I come across pretty much every week when I travel around speaking to large investors that they are dabbling with one, two, three, four percent of their portfolio into this space and. Um, even though it's big amounts, um, it is um, not a lot as a percentage if you expect uh, it to add a lot of value during any any uh, any particular period, of course. So for me, uh, for us, I should say, um, you know, we think it starts at 20% pretty much. That's what people should be looking at uh, having in this uh, in this bucket of their portfolio for it to have a meaningful uh, impact. Um, but of course, I um, also want to remind people of the uh, conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with Meb Faber, who 
as an evidence-based investor. And by the way, I met up with Meb in Dublin this week. That was great to catch up with him uh, in person. Um, and um, and of course, he comes to the conclusion that you should have 50% of your portfolio in trend-following strategies and then 25% equities, 25% bonds. Um, why not? I mean, if the evidence suggests that that's a better way of dealing with it, um, why not go with the evidence? I mean, I would love to see the evidence. Uh, and unfortunately, there wasn't really a, uh, an opportunity to ask the question of this panel because it didn't come up in that way. But if someone like Mev Faber has the evidence to suggest that a 50% allocation to, st- to trend-following strategies and then stocks and bonds 25-25, I would love to see people's evidence for to the contrary. You know, just be interesting to see. Jerry, you, you must have some strong opinions on this. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I've heard them all before. But, yeah, so I would, uh, you know, obviously I call into question the uh, trotting up the historical returns of the stock market as something to be robust and relied upon in the future. As we've said before on the podcast, the number of countries, stock markets that um, have shown positive returns over time keeps dwindling to what well, we're just going to end up with the U.S. only. And then maybe S and P only, uh, and even if you uh, look at the U.S., some the drawdowns are just intolerable. It's not a real investment to make about eight percent with a fifty plus. Or Nasdaq had a ninety percent drawdown once, so that's not even a. It's, it's all a joke, and I don't think that from a systematic trend point of view, I would be honest in saying uh, <clears throat> start with you know almost any percent of something that bad uh and the only thing people can point to is they don't know anything better number one essentially that's what they're saying and number two is that it's worked recently and it's worked really well and you guys haven't worked very well all true still um not something i would do i and as i said earlier when trend following fails like uh, february let's say where we end up uh, i would say failed in the sense that buy and hold is really the only thing that worked and then someone would say, but it, you didn't know it was going to go back up. Well, okay, true, but still let's give them credit for it, that it did work, it did go back up. Um, so maybe you allocate um, you know, 10 or 20% of long S&P all the time uh, that will add value historically to a robust trend-following system that utilizes all the markets, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, long and short. So I'm maybe 20% stocks, 80%. CTA portfolio. Yeah, and, and on that topic, uh, maybe something we won't go into too much detail in our conversation, but I'll certainly guide you to a, a little short paper that came through the mail um, in the last couple of days. And I think, Jerry, you had seen the full paper, but this is from AHL, of course, one of our highly regarded peers in the industry, uh, you know, founded 30-plus uh, years ago. Um and um, they do a lot of great stuff. And uh, their last research paper is called Strategic Rebalancing. And it goes kind of to the point that uh, you, Antonio, brings up about how much and from where should you allocate. And of course, uh, their conclusion uh, is that, um, you know, adding trend following to that portfolio will certainly be better. But they also go into maybe some surprising findings, um, what the difference is between using a strategic ongoing rebalancing strategy compared to just a buy and hold 
you know, in fact, they say here, just finding that in the paper, the maximum drawdown of a monthly rebalancing portfolio is 1.2 times or 5 percentage points worse than what a buy and hold portfolio would have uh, provided. So those are just some of the interesting topics, but I suggest people just... Google it and find it. It's called Strategic Rebalancing from Man AHL and, um, you know, food for thought. Um, but anyway... I'd like to, um, to add one thing to that. Yeah. And, you know, we have papers, uh, you know, by AHL. Um, uh, there's another one. Like when we look back, uh, AQR, I think, uh, which go uh, back 100 years, maybe even more than 100 years, and look at the historical performance of trend following. Now, obviously, those papers came out in recent years in a period during which trend following hasn't performed so well, maybe as a, you know, uh, point in case to make, well, guys, you know, this is only a couple of years you're looking at, look at the longer term history and everything should be fine. Now, what what I uh, would like to, to um, there's, there's a paper and let me mention that it's called Stock Market Charts You Never Saw. It's from September 2017. Uh, by Edward Macquarie from Santa Clara University. There's another one, I just forgot the title of that, which does the same for bonds. And if you, and you know, sometimes it's very hard to to come by that, you know, the, the very long-term historical data. But if you look at the performance of even the S&P 500, and the S&P 500 is kind of like regarded as the, looked at, you know, that's the best performing stock market, true to a certain extent. There's many other markets which haven't performed so well, like, you know, um, the Nikkei, uh, the MIP30, all of that. But even the S&P 500, right? The solid S&P 500. There have been periods, multi-decade periods, where buy and hold has not worked at all. And the same is true for bonds. Holding on to bonds can be absolutely devastating. And it's not just, you know, with even with the stocks, the 90% drawdown. Yeah, you can have a 90% drawdown. That's that's absolutely terrible. Get out of the drawdown. But you can have an, an investment in stocks for 20 or 30 years and not make money on a total return basis. That happens. That has not happened with trend following. So when I, you know, every time I read about the comparison trend following buy and hold and buy and hold bonds in 60 40 and all of that i my my hunch is that you know and you know there's it's, it's natural we all live in the in the present you only look back for the past 20 maybe 30 if you're lucky years and that's your point of reference that's your market that's your bull market in bonds that's more or less your bull market in equities and because it's been that way in the past 30 years you extrapolate that uh, going forward, and you use only this part of the sample for your comparison against trend following. What you don't use is the 1920s, the 1910s, the 1900s sample of stocks against trend following, because, well, you don't find that so easily. And it's kind of like, you know, that long ago, 100 years ago, so obviously it can't be relevant. But I think it is. And nobody's telling us that, you know, from next Monday onward, when the markets reopen, that we're not going to be in a period of just subpar equity returns for the next 10 or 20 years. It could happen. I'm not saying it will. I don't know, but it could happen. I wrote about it today in uh, in my weekly update to our clients. I mean, uh, Warren Buffett has his own yardstick um, about, you know, how high valuations are and, and all of that. And I think it's something like the total value of U.S. equities divided by 
the um, you know gross domestic product of the U.S. and um, back in 2000 or 1999, he wrote about that being at incredibly high levels, et cetera, et cetera. We all know what happened after that. And in fact, he wrote pretty much the same thing uh, only a few weeks ago. And um, and there's a chart, um, you know, relating to that. Um, and, and if you look at it, it, it definitely looks like equities are at very high values. Now, since we're not uh, in, in the business of making predictions, I'm not saying it will or will not happen, um, but you're absolutely right, Moritz. Um, it seems like we are held to a slightly different standard, right? If we have a 10-month drawdown, people are declaring the death of trend following, or as we discussed a few weeks ago, at least trend following is still alive, according to Bloomberg. Now it's only failing. But um, we never quite hear about that, um, you know, Nikkei, as you mentioned, peaked in 1989. It's 20 years ago. Hasn't made a high since then. Uh, I think Italy, did you quote that a few weeks ago, uh, Mortz? 25 years, no return in Italian stocks. Yes, Italy. Italy, yeah. So, never happened in trend following yet. Trend following seems to be a much worse place in many, in, in many journalists' mind, at least, let's put it that way. These drawdowns are just so minimized. They're in the past... We've seen what happens even when the NASDAQ is down 90%. It's going to come back. This is the inherent return that we're all, we all deserve. And was um, maybe Moses created this from the mountaintop that stocks, these random returns of stocks will always continue. So yeah, it's free. Um, we get a much different attitude when it comes to what we do, which is robust rules. And it's almost a religious experience that if we're down, be happy. You can buy more of these stocks right. and hold on forever. And this is from evidence-based people. Yeah. Whoa. Which doesn't sound very evidence-based to me. Like Meb is evidence-based. The evidence that he saw would be a more equal split of uh, CTAs plus traditional assets. But the evidence-based crowd, really when it gets down to it, it's the emotional-based crowd where in the religious-based, where <clears throat> we believe these things to be true, we're going to take our money and your money, mostly your money, and prove it in the future, even though uh, and they're not really uh, uh, taking responsibility for creating uh, an approach that is almost impossible for any individual to sit through, and rightfully so. We have these instincts uh, from the very beginning of mankind to flee problems and to preserve ourself. And so when people want to reduce exposure during losing periods, that's a positive, not a negative, not to add to losers, uh, catch the falling knife. It's the exact opposite. I'll never, ever placate these people and mealy mouth and say, oh, just give me five or 10%. No. If you maybe 20 but more likely uh, 100% for CTAs who exercise this risk control and diversification and are re respectfully are humbled by the markets and what they can, the devastation that they can cause and at the same time give you a fair chance of making some money. You know, when we say all of that, of course, and, and of course in some ways we kind of, um, in a polite way, um, you know, are critical, hopefully in a polite way, I hope it comes across like that, we are critical to many of the ways that portfolios, uh, which frankly could be our, you know, coming from institutions that we deal with, are constructed because they put 
in 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 many respect a, a too small uh, percentage of their portfolio into these strategies um, based on the evidence that we know of uh, and so on and so forth. But it's but I also want to recognize that. I do. We do understand that in a world where everybody gets judged by, you know, what's the performance of last month, and everybody has to kind of justify their decisions. The world tends to be a place uh, where people prefer to fail conventionally instead of succeed unconventionally, and that's just the way it is, uh, unfortunately. But the more people who will take uh, a leap of faith and and do things differently, and hopefully have the success, um, you know, we certainly uh, encourage that. Let's jump on to the next question. Um, this is a question from Kevin. Thanks so much, Kevin, for writing to us this week. Um, and it's uh, it's mainly for, for Jerry, I think, but maybe we'll chime in, uh, Moritz and I. It goes on, in the last episode, Jerry talked about evaluating his trading system by looking back at the data and seeing whether it got him into all the trends that appeared and got him out somewhere reasonable. My question is, when looking back, do you have a preferred systematic definition of what was and was not a trend, or do you apply your own discretion and judgment to decide? What What are your thoughts on on this, Jerry? When when you want to quickly I'm validate, the, I guess, yeah, uh, what I you're think, doing. Uh, I think that. Uh, <clears throat> In essence, it's going to be a you know your own opinion discretion, but I th- would make it so broad that it would be very difficult to disagree uh, that uh, you know palladiums in an uptrend and <clears throat> getting into the trend and cattle and uh, you know the definition of these big uptrends in my the way I look at it is at least a year maybe uh, one or two years of uh, <clears throat> of holding onto a trade. So I'm kind of look like an investor. Oh my gosh, you know I don't want to be an investor. But uh, if the computer told me to get out quicker and to have uh, a slower, uh, faster system, I would do it. So I'm following these trends. It should be fairly obvious. It's not controversial when a trend uh, is multiple times, multiple places on a chart. You could sort of say it started here or started there. I think uh, getting out and capturing a certain percentage of the profits, maybe you look back and you sort of say, okay, historically before uh, 2008 or pick a date, my system had a tendency to uh, make half of the trend. If it started on this date, ended on that date, I would make 50% of that profit uh, or two-thirds or whatever. But here recently, it's been one-third or I'm giving back you know, historically more of the profit than I have in the past. So just thinking about it in those terms. And of course, uh, trying to come up with ideas that might improve uh, the recent underperformance that don't doesn't sort of torpedo and limit the historical performance. I think it's more it's important. Uh, we touched on this earlier to look at all of the data and not overweight the recent data because things are different. We're modern now. We have computers. We have uh, Twitter. So I look at all of the data and sort of look at it equally. Uh, but I think sort of comparing. But I think it's fraught with problems because. I also believe if you're just looking at the big trends and the big trades, it's a small sample size. So I never know it could revert. It's a really big puzzle uh, as to how to go about deciding uh, to stop trading a certain way or certain parameters. Yeah, I mean, let alone the uh, 
you know, just a time horizon you choose to to look at because as we've mentioned before, uh, and you should be aware of that, Kevin, that some markets are not profitable for many years, um, but it doesn't mean they don't add value to the portfolio uh, at critical times. And 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 over time, um, at least from our point of view, we believe that, that all markets will actually end up giving more or less the same returns uh, over long enough time. So that might be 30 or 40 years. And of course, most of us only end up having 30, 40 years careers uh, as, as investors. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a fair question. Kind of one of the perverse uh, benefits of last year was uh, every, nothing worked. <laughs> so right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what you chose. So if you had a problem with last year, it's with maybe the whole concept of trend following, not your particular system, since uh, like none of them almost were. There's no, yeah, no, no we, big winners. No, exactly. I mean, we did a study, a very detailed study, it's not a public study, so so there's no need to write in and say, can we have a copy of it? But but it's a study that we did for our clients just to see whether look back period was really determinant for how your uh, trend following performance uh, was. And so we went back about 28 years to see what the quote unquote best look back periods had been over 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 time. Um, and you would be surprised really how much fluctuation you see. I mean, one year it could be 40 days, the next year it could be 240 days. It really does vary a lot. Um, but um, but last year, uh, there was absolutely none of the, um, you know, time uh, look back periods that we, we analyzed, which was very broad. I mean, from only a few weeks to to, you know, almost two years, nothing worked in 2018. So it wasn't about whether you were long-term, short-term, medium-term. Uh, it, that was really not the the issue. As Jerry said, there were just no trends, um, maybe except in a in a couple of markets like coffee. And I think there's, you know, one, one or two other commodities that actually did produce some kind of trend. But yeah, just one of those years. And um They'll come again, I mean, uh, for sure. But luckily, they don't come as often. This is, again, going back to diversification. This is why diversification is really important uh, in, in the portfolio, for sure. What about you, Moritz? Really nothing to add. I think you've uh, described it very good. Nothing <laughs> to add there. All righty. Um, those were the questions. Um, so keep them coming. Keep sending them in. We really, as I said, we really do enjoy um, this part of the uh, conversation where we, it's a chance for us to uh, learn a little bit about the things that people find to be um, difficult uh, with trend following, um, but also to hear other observations. In fact, one of our listeners, um, George, who's been writing in questions uh, from time to time, um, on the whole point about giving long-term perspective uh, to the strategy, I know he shared with us some really interesting insights from people uh, who wrote uh, stuff, you know, 100 plus years ago. So not even one of those studies that were, like we talked about people going back 100 years ago. This is stuff that was written 100 years ago and it is still as true uh, as it was back then to how that concept of trend following works today. It's extraordinarily interesting. I hope we may find a way to to share that uh, with you. Um, and uh, because I think most people don't really um, truly appreciate um, the robustness of the concept uh, of what we do because there's too much focus on 
the outcome. And I think just a plug for something, and maybe we'll get Annie Duke to come on the podcast one day um, and talk about decision-making and the difference between judging your decision on whether it was the best decision or whether it was the most accurate decision. And of course, she just released a a book. I think it's called Thinking in Bets. Um, And uh, I started listening to it. And it's pretty fascinating. So I'd love to have her on the show. The next guest, by the way, that will come on uh, the show is in a couple of weeks, uh, Jesse Felder, um, you know, ex-hedge fund manager, uh, now writes really interesting uh, blogs, analysis about the markets. Um, so super excited to uh, to have Jesse come on the uh, podcast in a couple of weeks. So if you have questions for him as well, check out his blog already. Find some points that you find interesting that we can facilitate uh, maybe in terms of some questions from you that would be really uh, helpful so any, anyways info at toptradersonplug.com is where you just need to send us those uh, questions so while Jerry and you Moritz think about um, maybe some other things you want to bring up today let me just quickly run through the performance uh, so far if this month of March so these numbers are always uh, close of business Thursday so I think yesterday was a negative day, as far as I can tell, for the industry. But as of Thursday, uh, B-Top 50 index was up 1.55 for the month, up about a quarter percent for the year. Sockgen CTA index up 1.62 for the month, uh, pretty flat, up 12 basis points for the year. Sockgen trend index up 2.5, uh, flat, completely flat more or less, 4 basis points up for the year. The SOCGEN short-term traders index was up 63 basis points uh, for the month, down 2.12 for the year. And the bridge alternatives index, the flat fee index, up 2.2% for the month and down 2.2% for the year still. So, uh, yeah, bit of a mixed bag still. What else should we uh, bring up in our conversation this week, if anything? What do you feel like, guys? I think we're good. Nothing uh, nothing more from my side. Have a great week, everyone. Happy trading. Sure. What about you, Jerry? Um, Sam oh, yeah. said that I wasn't very good at, at the send-off, at the remembering what my... <laughs> and, he's, and he's right. I need to work on that. So I've expended all of my energy. I'm out of breath. I left it all in the field, Sam. But I'm going to work on my last two minutes again next week. But fade the fundamentals. Yeah. That's, yeah. I'm going to go crazy. Fade. Be happy that you're all alone and everyone is skeptical. Yeah. Well, as we all will work on our uh, outros or whatever we call it, slogans for this, uh, we'll wrap up this week's conversation, which I'm sure you can tell is pretty improvised and we want to keep it that way. And we hope you enjoy this format as much as we enjoy, you know, creating it. You know, in addition to sending in the questions, of course, we would love for you to share these episodes, share the podcast, uh, help us create a bigger impact uh, and more discussion on this point in in the world. That would be great. Um, and of course, feel free to to share it with a friend or two. Uh, that always uh, helps. And if you really want to help, you know, a review and a rating on iTunes is is something that uh, has an immediate impact, positive impact on the podcast. So. Uh, if you would do that, we would certainly appreciate it. From Jerry Martz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.